Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today uh, I am going to be responding to a, um, a request from a uh, viewer on, or at least a suggestion uh, from a viewer on the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel about uh, what uh, lessons I had learned from the um, running the Night Below cam- uh, campaign. And uh, this is... Uh, the, the, the I, I've seen the reviewer or the um, uh, the viewer responded um, with a pretty big uh, list of their own uh, lessons, but I I, and I I think that what they had intended was for it to be kind of a broader thing. But I'm I'm not sure that the viewer understood that uh, the variety of games that I run on the channel. So it's not like one lesson, uh, or at least my perspective on games, where the approach to the game has to fit the game and the players. Uh, and I don't have you know, I Six, certainly seven kilometers. Take oh. exit on right to Highway Two. I also need to take uh, Highway Two in seven kilometers. Um, uh, the, you know, my, my approach to, to running all games is always to uh, to adapt to have a specific, um, you know, a specific way to or specific rules in mind to approach to engender the kind of game experience I want at the table uh, appropriate to that specific game. You know, like the way I run. Uh, Dracula dossier uh, using cult, for instance, is very different from the way that I run my ADD second edition uh, game. So I, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not sure I've got a master list that I, I use. But what I am, uh, what I do think is is going to be uh, useful is thinking about the things that specifically I've learned over the last six months or so uh, of running um, ADD second, you know, twice a week, uh, and yeah, and see what uh, what reflections. Uh, I've drawn uh, what things I would do the same, what things I would do differently, and yeah, that's what we're going to jump into today. So, lessons learned from the night below. I should say night below thus far. Uh, so, the first thing is uh, that, boy, I mean, like, <laughs> there's a lot more people who are interested in playing ADD second than what I had expected. Um, we, you know, when we switched over to uh, to be a game. Um, for background, the reason I made the switch over from uh, at the time I was running Pathfinder Second Edition, um, the I, I switched over to running uh, AD and D Second Edition, uh, and the reason was uh, partly because I I just felt like Pathfinder Two was not giving the experience at the table that I was wanting, and uh, it particularly wasn't handling the rotating cast. Uh, quite as well because Pathfinder 2, not as much as what D&D 4th does, but Pathfinder 2 does have some pretty strong assumptions as to like what roles you are playing in combat, uh, particularly healing and tanking. Um, and when you don't have those, it makes for uh, you know a game that is run in a way that it is not necessarily designed to to run. And you know, on on a recent podcast, I talked about how you could take an approach and, and like you know, uh, sacrifice your babies and, and make a way to make Pathfinder 2E fit that kind of uh, format. But I really, for one, I wasn't really thinking of that at the time. And um, I had been thinking quite a bit about the really positive sandbox experience we had with um, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. At the time, that campaign was inching up to, to like the 30s for a number of sessions. And it's just like, it was s- such a fun game to, uh, to run and to... Uh, yeah, and uh, we routinely have a big uh, group, so and rotating group without any problems. So, what I was um, 
what I was thinking is that this would be having a sandbox game with a little bit more of a story focus to it because Barrel Maze is uh, is a really, really cool mega dungeon, but that's precisely what it is. It's a mega dungeon. You have one route that you can sort of follow, which is deeper into the mega dungeon. Um, there's also not really, like, as you get exploring, there is a sort of emergent story, an emergent sort of world that's there. There is that sort of emergent storytelling, but there isn't, like, an urgent specific threat in, in the rules in the uh, setting as written that um, oops, wrong thing. Uh, that would lead to the uh, the characters uh, being drawn in my apologies folks I'm navigating to go and get some boxes for the move while I'm <laughs> recording this um, the yeah there isn't like a you know uh, a ticking clock or something like that or some kind of threat that the players become aware of that draws them in it is very much a um, a reactive uh, setting where as the players go in things will you know will happen and, and I don't say that as a way of done right. uh, sorry as a way of uh, criticizing that uh, campaign that Baramaze is exactly what the designer intended it to be but for our for our next campaign what I wanted was something that was a little more um, that had a little more of a of not a narrative but specific hooks to kind of draw the players in and had more of an overarching uh, story to it. Uh, in the sense that, like, as the players went through, there was, you know, there was a big bad that they were sort of going to be facing and whatnot, and uh, and that's what the game really does. There's an awful lot of sandboxing in it, and, um, yeah, yeah, so, I mean, like, it's, it's not like it's just a an adventure path, say, where, like, you're going from, like, one set encounter and, and there's a clear kind of line all the way through to the end of it. That certainly is not the case with Night Below. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, I, that, that was part of the reason for it. And then for, for AD&D, I wanted something that was more, the reason I didn't go with, uh, Ash was because I, uh, I wanted something that was more, uh, I think more like traditional fantasy something close to what we were getting with Pathfinder 2, but I wanted to see what the, you know, what would it be like using certain uh, rules that, that we've, uh, some of the house rules that we had adopted, uh, either stolen directly from Ash or things that we had developed, like using a, a narrative meta-currency uh, like Astonishing Fortune, um, but using it in a different way. I, I learned a lesson from Ash that I, I like the uh, the way the way you can make use of uh Astonishing Fortune in Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea in my games is a lot more powerful or um, it's a lot more yeah, I mean it, it's a lot more intrusive, I guess, is another way of uh, thinking of it. So like, players can spend Astonishing Fortune to automatically make a save. They don't need to make a roll for it. They can automatic, they can negate a hit. Um, they can, yeah, there's lots of very uh, powerful ways that they can interf interfere, I guess, with the with the consequences of the of the game. Um, I that was great for that game, and it fits the big ass swords and sorcery heroes that I that I want in that game, and it allows me to throw some pretty substantial threats against the players um, without without like ruining without um, worrying about killing the characters left, right, and center. Uh, but I wanted something a little less. Uh, potent in the AD&D uh, game. In two kilometers. 
So I'm going to apologize. I actually lost my spot um, <laughs> when I had was talking about this. I had to uh, break to get some boxes, and I forgot what I was talking about. So I think that what I was talking about, if this does not flow naturally, forgive me. Um, but um, well, I thought what I was talking about was the uh, uh, the reason AD&D second, um, which was uh, because uh, this um, uh, th- this particular game uh, was uh, going to be a uh, more of a traditional fantasy. Uh, I wanted to carry on with what I had been running with um, with the, the, something similar to the Pathfinder Two one, and also I guess I mean like I at the time I had been uh, collecting quite a bit of uh, AD and D second stuff, uh, much of which I was using in my um, what do you call it in my uh, Ash game. I was using uh, like the Wilderness Survival Guide. I was using a bunch of monsters and stuff from uh, the uh, a lot of the second edition materials, and uh, I had actually even adapted the kits uh, from, or some of them at least, from uh, second edition to use in Ash for a, a kind of an experimental mashup of using Ash with some AD&D stuff with some, uh, with the Pathfinder uh, first edition adventure called the, uh, the Dead Roads, which is this really cool, trippy, you know, uh, thing where the players start off... Uh, you know, waking up in a tomb. Uh, so it's a really very, it's a cool adventure path in, in general, but uh, definitely uh, uh, was a, a, a fun experiment to try. And uh, I think that may have been the thing that informed some of the decisions for what I, uh, you know, how I decided to run uh, Pathfinder uh, or Pathfinder at AD&D 2nd. Um, because partly the, you know, the, uh, for running a, uh, a game like Ash, uh, and in that particular campaign, my, uh, what is it, my uh, Reavers of Tula campaign, that particular campaign is 100%, you know, me, like, I, I'm uh, making up what I want to have happen in it, I'm not adapting adventures or things like that, I'm using some materials and, and maps and stuff from existing stuff, but uh, it's otherwise just all me, and as such, I can kind of balance the, you know, the adversaries to be appropriate to what I think is is right, and that's not really the case with uh, when you're running it. Like in, in my my first effort was running an adventure path. It's not the same when you're running an adventure path because the it is built with a different, obviously a different game and a different balancing factor. And I, I think at the time I didn't appreciate uh, just how substantial the difference was between uh, AD and D uh, uh, second uh, and uh, third edition or Pathfinder or things like that. Um, on a, a side note, too, I, in the course of moving, I packed up a bunch of my AD&D third stuff, and of all the editions, like I bought and read voraciously a lot of third edition, but I think it's the edition I've run the least. You know, certainly uh, after uh, 3.5 uh, came out, I, I per- initially was pretty big on it, but then I dropped out. You know, like the Book of Nine Rings and uh, a, the uh, DMG Two, and like a lot of those books, I never got into them. I, it was never something that I uh, uh, I picked up. So, uh, and and the reason being is I didn't really have uh, a steady group at the time uh, for playing that. At that time of my life, uh, I was moving quite a bit for school, uh, and it was just difficult to maintain a, a regular gaming group. So, at the time, I was reading the books a lot more than just running them. Uh, and as such, like I, my perspective on, I burned out on, on, uh, 3E pretty, uh, about midway through the life cycle of that game. And then I just, I just wasn't, you know, 
keeping up on it. And, um, part, I, I wonder whether, and you know what, it was probably mostly from, uh, 3.5, uh, when 3.5 came out and did sort of the, you know, the rebalancing of, uh, the classes and a lot of the spells and shit like that. And it focused so heavily on balance and, and whatnot. Um, I, that was a sort of my lack of interest in it. And I, and when you pair that with me not running it as much, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I keep saying uh, on the podcast and on the channel is that you don't really get to appreciate a game until you see it at the table. And because I had not run, you know, I stopped running uh, 3rd and 3.5 really for, for any substantial length of time, I spent most of my time theory crafting. And I wonder whether my negative experience or negative perspective on uh, AD&D 3 and 3.5 is partly informed by the fact that I really didn't run it all that much. See, you know, uh, Pathfinder as well, too. Pathfinder I've run a handful of times. Um, uh, Pathfinder 2 I'm a lot more uh, conversant with, but Pathfinder 1 I've only really run a handful of times, and I tend to focus more on the... Uh, like, don't get me wrong, I've had a lot of fun with, with Pathfinder 1 the, the times that I've run it, but I've also... It's one of the only campaigns that... Uh, or one of the only games where I found that it frustrated me to the point where I actually kind of pulled a pin on the game. Um, and... Anyway, that's, that's, that's an aside, but it just, I, uh, it was something I was thinking about uh, recently that I, I wonder whether, had I been playing through, through to 3.5 uh, a lot more, whether I would have had a different uh, perspective on it, a different, uh, you know, feeling towards that game. You know, would I have a more nostalgic uh, perspective on it, uh, I, like I do with 4th edition. 4th edition is, you know, has tons of flaws with it, but I have wonderful memories of, of running that game. And every time I think about running it a game, I, I start thinking, you know, oh, that's going to be so much fun. And which, so I'm, I'm happy, you know, I wonder whether had I run third and third 3.5 more, whether I would have had a, uh, a more wistful perspective on it or whether I would have been like, God, I was so ready to be rid of this edition, which, uh, you know, I understand some people uh, were feeling, I've never felt that, that way about a game, uh, that I can't wait for a new edition. If I actually like a game, I, I want to keep playing it. And if I don't like a game, I don't run it, so... Um, anyway, so getting back to this, uh, the, the question at hand here, the, uh, so that was the, the, a perspective I had. I wanted to run it, uh, as close to rules as written as, as I, uh, you know, as I could for Night Below. I wanted to use, um, as many of the, uh, like baseline, uh, options for, uh, AD and D second. I also wanted to, uh, make sure that I, um, uh, that I implemented uh, house rules as as needed, but I wanted to kind of see how things played before I did that for some things. I also knew that there were going to be... I wanted to open the door to kits because I, I think they're a really cool idea, uh, particularly with, uh, like, Al-Qadim, the uh, Arabian Adventures one. It, it implements kits in a very, very, very good, you know, thematically linked way, so I really wanted to, to try and do that. Um... But I knew that there were balance issues with a lot of them. So I, I wanted to... I, I'm not looking for clear balance with it, but I wanted to make sure that there was a good fit between what the players were selecting and, you know, what and the campaign I had in mind. And, and you know, we had one that was cut out right away was uh, there's a swashbuckler kit, for instance, from ADD uh, for the warrior and for... or rather the fighter and the uh, thief. 
And uh, I cut that one because it like the sort of the balancing factor with the swashbuckler is that it assumes that the um, the the uh, DM will be throwing the the, the swashbuckler is going to have trouble come up. You know, it, it's in uh, I've talked before about this uh, disadvantage in GURPS called weirdness magnet, and it's this thing where it's like you know if something weird happens, it's going to happen to you. You know, if it's a if a, um, a princess escapes her captors and, and goes running into a crowd, you're the one they're going to bump into, you know, just that's the way that works. And that is a different, because we were running a sandbox game um, and one that was going to be uh, emergent play, uh, I felt that the uh, that assumption uh, would have run very contrary to the to that style. You know, it, it requires the DM to interfere uh, and force in certain story developments, and that's absolutely just just was contrary to what I wanted with the uh, night below. I wanted the guys to go out and sandbox, and you know, find what they wanted to get involved with, get involved with the things they wanted, ignore the things they didn't, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and uh, see the world develop as they are interacting with it. Uh, so that was the. Um, uh, that was the plan, you know, uh, and then we, we launched, you know, and now we find ourselves 33 sessions later. So what did I, uh, what stuff did I learn? Uh, for one, um, you know, for one, I really, really enjoy AD&D second. I, I'm, I've now run two different, uh, uh, campaigns, uh, with it, or at least I've got two different campaigns on the go using AD&D second, using the same, uh, house rules that we've developed. Uh, the, First is obviously the Night Below campaign. The second is our quarantine game, which is uh, uh, run with uh, using the legacy of the Crystal Shard adventure, which is really proving to be pretty fucking cool. Um, but the so that's one thing. One thing is, is that I, I really love uh, AD and D, and I think AD and D can be used for a lot more, uh, a lot more things than I had realized. It's a lot more versatile, and yeah, um, it. Even like low-level play is, in, I think, incredibly immersive and engaging. And yeah, boy, it's a, it's a really, really solid game. Like, there's a reason that uh, that game was around for such a long time and had such a, a long history. Um, uh, and so many interesting innovations with it too. You know, uh, which I guess leads me into my second thing is that like house rules are key with uh, ADD Second. I've talked about this in my overview of uh, ADD Second on the YouTube channel. But, you know, the, um, the, the game, if you run it just as, I mean, if you run it just with none of the options, um, then you are going to have a, I mean, a game that's fairly similar to AD&D first, but the options is where you get to make the game, you know, what you want. Um, and one of the things I, you know, I, I do run a lot of old school games, um, but I, I hesitate to put myself as part of the like OSR movement necessarily or OSR scene uh, only because like I don't uh, I'm f it's more um, a happy coincidence that I'm enjoying you know the experience we're getting with these games uh, than me actively pursuing the old school and trying to only have it as as an old school game you know um, the uh, I, I am primarily interested in making for a really fun and engaging experience for my players at the table and for myself as well too, right? Like I want to have a good time running the game. And 
using some of the options or using the options we use, either things that are drawn from the rule book or stolen from other games or whatever, that makes for the ideal version of the game. You know, our use of uh, Astonishing Fortune regularly in all of our ADD games uh, is kind of anathema. We've had one person mention that uh, uh, in the comments, how like, oh, this is this isn't D and D, and it's like, well, you know, the that, that's uh, that's fine, but I mean, like, if, if what your goal is is to run the game specifically as written in the rule book well I mean bully for you but I mean like you're not going to get any extra prizes the ultimate goal of everyone is to just have fun at the table and uh, if your group would not have uh, at least would not have as much fun and get the experience they want um, by doing that then you know you as a DM have a responsibility because I mean it, or have a, at least you have a decision to make is is what is most important making for the optimal play experience at the table or is the is the goal you know fidelity to rules written in the late 70s and early 80s and there's not a wrong answer there it's just that while there is there's a wrong answer if it isn't the thing that is best for the overall group so I think that's you know uh, that that's an easy decision so in any event I mean uh, forgive me for being uh, touchy about that particular uh, comment it's just it was so stupid and short-sighted like and uh, you know the it's the kind of uh, comment that you get sometimes where people just like they're so far behind the curve in understanding what's going on that it would take you so long to to bring them up to like well that's fine but that's not what we're doing here and this is blah 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 and you know and it's like well you're wasting air because that, that person is not clearly has their their uh, you know their mind closed to what is and is not a you know D and D and A D and D and if they're not picking it up by osmosis, then ugh, it's not my job to tell them what um, you know what we're really doing and why it's good for our table um, and is worth at least considering as an option for your own. But anyway, anyway, um, that's so that's what I learned. Uh, the other thing I learned is that you know I uh, the combat and so the, there was a, a series of books that came out late in the life cycle of A D and D called the Skills and Powers books, and they are very interesting and, and they're very popular with a certain subsect uh, or subset of AD&D players um, but um, after reviewing them I, they really seem like a solid step towards what would become third edition and uh, at least there's like a lot of the ideas that were developed in there there you can see direct parallels particularly with the combat stuff uh, in uh, third edition and I I wanted I, I didn't want to just take them wholesale uh, because I felt that, uh, to be honest, I mean, in in retrospect, what they look like to me is um, a, a large element of a large amount of like third edition three point five Pathfinder rules that are just overlaid onto a AD and D chassis, and that's not the experience I wanted. I wanted to have something that started with AD and D and kind of went in a divergent direction, similar to what Ash did. You know, Ash has a lot of really great uh, tactical options that they've introduced. But they remain core to the AD&D experience, not to um, you know Pathfinder or, or uh, Third Edition or, or that sort of uh, that style of uh, simulationist uh, play. So uh, I stole some ideas from that, but I, I, again, I, I didn't want to go wholesale with it, and I certainly didn't want to use all the custom building class stuff. I really wanted to take advantage, like play with the classes that existed and use kits. To customize and sort of add extra flavor to the uh, uh, to the characters, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that the way that I run uh, AD&D Second is certainly uh, 
I mean, audible, I mean, obviously not the only way to run it, but it's also, you know, it, it's what works for our particular table. Uh, so if, um, you know, if you have a different uh, group with different sensibilities at your table, it's, it's probably going to work differently. But the lesson I learned from that is that you need to make it um, key to the table, you know, uh, or fit for the table. And with that in mind, too, I guess another lesson is house rules. You know, house rules are key for, for this. You need to, there will be situations that come up um, that do not have clear uh, outcomes or, you know, things that you're going to be, players will do that you will routinely, um, you know, you'll, you'll routinely be coming up with rules on the fly for it. Like, for instance, if a character decides to spend their full action hunkering down behind a shield, you know, they're really going to only be peeking their head out. Well, not, there's not really rules written for that, so we came up with, for our house rules, a um, a maneuver uh, that players could use in in lieu of attacking, they could do that, and then they get a pretty significant bonus. It's very similar to like fighting defensively in some modern games, and um, yeah, I mean, and it's uh, it's proved to be pretty cool. Like the, the player who is re- uh, adopting that ta- uh, tactic quite a bit, um, that's something they now rely on quite heavily. Not always, like it's not the always go-to button for it, but it's uh, it's pretty awesome that they've got that option, particularly against adversaries that are really tough or really you know damaging um, in relative to the player's capabilities. So, uh, so that's the thing. And our our house rules are a uh, you know it's a, a work in progress continually. You know because there will always be new things coming up. So we keep iterations of it, and then every time we do a new iteration of the house rules, I, I circulate that and. Uh, you know, I've, I've got the new date on it, so we can see the evolution of that. So I think that's another lesson is that leave yourself open to uh, uh, to house rules. Now, modern games that have more, you know, uh, strictly codified uh, things, um, you know, strictly codified rules that have had the benefit of playtesting and a bunch of other stuff, you know, input and whatnot, maybe you don't need to necessarily do that, but it's worth considering, you know. And if nothing else, it is... If you're bearing in mind that there is house rules, it, it first off and, and create a document for you know creating your house rules. First, it opens the, the possibility, like it opens up that la- that uh, like mindscape or possibility, you know, that there is going to be something beyond what's written in the rule book. And for really rules heavy games like Pathfinder, that can sometimes be a you know that can be a um, a paradigm shifting uh, thing. You know, uh, there's it's it's interesting. Pathfinder players that I've that I've encountered, the hardcore players that I've played with so far, they occupy a really interesting space where, like, they want the rules to be written down. They want to have a clear idea of exactly what the rules are for everything. But they're also live to what options you're using. So so long as they know what specific options you're using, you know, whether it's something drawn from the Pathfinder Unchained or whether it's something you come up with yourself or whatever, um, they they want to know that there is a solid groundwork uh, for it. And I mean, that's not necessarily endemic only of Pathfinder first edition players, but Pathfinder first edition does have a very, very complicated and very well, you know, tested and, and, um, you know, uh, the tires have been kicked uh, on that system more than once. So I understand, and, you know, and, and the way that character generation works for that with so many options, so many decisions you're making about the mechanics of your character that prioritize certain things over another thing, it makes sense that that they would want to have a firm understanding of that in order to fully uh, engage and fully make, uh, make appropriate uh, decisions with respect to their other, you know, um, 
their characters, um, the character generation part of the, of the game. Um, and the, yeah, I guess, so that's, that's another thing is, is uh, having uh, the house rules. I think I will in uh, all, for all my campaigns going forward, I will create a, a house rule document and make sure that players have access to that. So they're, it's clear to everybody what we're, you know, what optional roles we're playing with that that'll be good for everybody rather than trying to re- just remember the shit that I'm I've changed for this for that specific game um, and it's, it's relatively easy to maintain like it's very little work for me I, I poke in and at the house rules every couple of months or you know and I mean actually that goes in fits and starts too like at the beginning we saw a lot of changes to it and then we those slowly trickled out some more slowly because we fed you know we the game kind of fell into the uh, the the place that we want it to be um, in, in terms of like how the rules worked and, and whatnot. So so that's another thing. Um, another thing I learned from this campaign is uh, to all there's this is a conjoint conjunction or just two different related issues. One of them is uh, in order to have a big group you need to have a specific uh, rule set you know like the the uh, AD&D rule set um, fits very in all those old school games they they work very very well with large groups because you're not spending a lot of time fussing with the mechanics you know like they're the uh, the combat in particular uh moves a lot faster um and you're not engaging with nearly as many um nearly as many uh like elements i guess as uh as you do in some uh, modern games uh so the game just those games feel like they, they play much faster through that part uh, and they also facilitate uh, much bigger uh, groups of adversaries which conversely also means you can play with a lot more people you know like the reason I picked the AD&D second for our uh, quarantine campaign is because it works so well with big groups like it it uh, it moves along at a good speed uh, it doesn't feel like it lags all that much even though you're, you're rolling Okay, sorry about that, folks. I had to take a call and I just lost my train of thought again. So maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll break this uh, segment off here and uh, and carry on in a uh, in a new segment. Okay, so this is uh, part two of the uh, lessons from the night below. Uh, I think where I left things off was talking about the uh, group size, and uh, that's definitely something that I think is is such an asset of those rule set. You know, like the the dynamic of having so many players sitting around. There's a lot of games that um, where the game, the complexity of the game or the level of detail that's required from characters and players and the amount of decisions they need to make each round, sometimes that um, that definitely affects the uh, speed of play, which means that to have a reasonable you know, game where people aren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs until it comes to their turn, uh, like 4th edition. 4th edition would be a nightmare with 7 people. Um, the ADD works so well with uh, with big groups you know uh, as I said at the outset I guess like you gotta every game is different and you gotta figure out what you wanna you know what you wanna prioritize and what's appropriate or at least what's important uh, for the table and for that particular group and for both of these groups what I wanted to do was uh, for Night Below and for uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard my, my primary goal was maximizing the amount of players we could get at the table um, and because we, we have, you know, we're fortunate on the channel to have such a great roster of players, I really wanted to make sure that we could uh, give an opportunity for as many of them to, to play as possible. 
and um, that was not the only uh, focus of the you know of the play, but uh, it certainly was one of the considerations. And AD and D does such a terrific job in so many different ways. Like not only does the, the pace of play at the table fit really well, character creation is relatively simple. Simple, so characters can get in there and get playing right away. The dynamic you get with a big group as well too. Like it, it can um, at it can be problematic sometimes, or it can be. Uh, challenging when, especially if people are trying to make decisions for for what route to go. But if you've got a couple of strong players who, who, or at least experienced players who are like, look, we we can't keep talking about this, you know, and and ifs and whats to death. We need to pick a course of action and go with it. Um, it works very very well, you know. Um, and players who understand, you know, one of the things you sacrifice with that is. You, you kind of have to go with the group. You have to kind of appreciate that you can't go off and do your own thing. So you're not going to have as much of an opportunity in a, in the big group games uh, to to have individual characters go off and do their own thing and whatnot. But that's, I think, uh, the players uh, recognize that that is just something that you have to concede for uh, for, for that st- type of play to work. All There's a bunch of good things you get from it. The bad thing is you don't get to spend... A lot of time, you know, sessions where it's just focused on one specific character and their backstory and whatever else. Uh, it, uh, unless that ties directly in with what everyone else is doing, you know, our uh, our night below game has uh, something like that where one of the characters. It, there's a lot of uh, interesting backstory related to his character, but um, it isn't any less fascinating and any any less important for the rest of the group too. You know, like it happens to have a link to the character as well, but it isn't just about that character. Um, so yeah, so you don't get those, you know, the, that really, or if you do get those really focused moments, they're few and far between. And the way I've been thinking about it is it's the difference between reading like, you know, an issue of Batman or an issue of action comics or an issue of Wonder Woman, as opposed to reading an issue of Justice League. Justice League is about the team. It's about what they're doing. It's not about focusing on Batman or Superman or Hawkman or whatever. That's what their own books are for is to explore that stuff. That book is about the team, the overall team, and the, and the adventures the team gets in, and that's what the you know you have to have that sort of mentality. Um, and again, it's, it's not it's it is not for everyone, um, and that's fine. Um, my desire as a DM to try and please everyone, uh, you know, is the only reason why I have kind of like oh I'm sorry that I'm sad to see this that there's some players who just really didn't want to play in in, uh, in that style of play, but honestly, like it's probably more fun with I've been having with this game than any other game I've run in the last little while you know I um, the the amount of really great role playing on the part of the players uh, and I like I said that's another thing too so um, another lesson is the value of emergent storytelling you know what uh, by by there, there's a term in um, uh, what do you call it I mentioned this in the last podcast too but since I'm doing a list here one of the things that I learned in, um, from a, a talk at, by, at the Game Designers Conference, conference, uh, the GDC, is this idea called emergent storytelling. You know, the, they use um, uh, Bioshock as, a, as an example of that, you know, done really, really well. And that's where the story, the players learn the story, not through like, you know, uh, and either cut scenes or you know, NPCs just doing info dumps. It's through the sort of osmotic learning that we all do, how we learn as as kids about 
the environment or when you move to a new place or whatever. You, you learn through social cues. You learn through environmental cues. You learn through watching things interact from, from learning tidbits of, of, uh, you know, of knowledge and then figuring out what the context is for those in the wider world. Um, I uh, embrace that approach for this campaign and holy shit, is it fun. I've been using it in uh, Ash as well too. And it's been so much fun, you know, and, and so cool seeing the players finally putting stuff together, you know, like in the course of the 25 sessions or so that we spent with the players, um, yeah, infiltrating and, uh, you know, learning more about, uh, Heather Top Warren, the, the main, the first main kind of complex or dungeon that we've, uh, we've encountered, uh, boy, it's been cool seeing them, you know, uh, seeing them, um, piece that together, you know, and, and uh, come to that realization of, of what the actual history is. And, and, and that's just amazing. You know, like I, I definitely, definitely, definitely want to use that for more, uh, for, well, I mean, keep using that in campaigns because it's such a, it's such a phenomenally powerful way of communicating story and setting, uh, in particular for a, a game like in a video game, it's a different way you do that, right? Because it's visuals and, and auditory uh, cues and, th- and things like that, um, or audio cues. But in a role-playing game, you're, the players are, are casting all of that in their imagination, right? That sounds very, very flaky, but I mean, that's the reality. The reality is, is these games, the reason they have cachet and they have value is because of the imagination of the players. And the being able to, you know, conjure or evoke really memorable things that have a story significance in their imagination, I think has more lasting, you know, uh, or more staying power than just info dumps from NPCs, you know? Um, and that's pretty awesome. You know, that's, I think a, uh, that's a really good thing. At the end of the day, you always want to have, um, memorable, you know, experiences for, for your players uh, have them walk away from the table talking about that and, and refer to it years to come. That's a really powerful way of doing that, uh, you know. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just um, I am very much looking forward to uh, to continuing on with that. It's it definitely requires patience and planning, um, and uh, it it it, uh, it is a long burn. You know, it is a long payoff. It is not something that uh, pays off uh, immediately. Um, it doesn't, it's not something that, uh, you know, you, you can see payoff in a very short period, but the value in that long payoff, you know, um, I've talked before about how I either write, uh, short stories or novels as far as my campaigns go. Um, and those writers have different techniques and different tools and different approaches for those two different types of, um, of story. And the, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, in the same way in, in campaigns, I've got a previous episode where I talk about the rules for writing short, uh, uh, for one-shots, adapting Kurt Vonnegut's um, rules for writing short stories. But a novel obviously has a different structure and whatever else, and that's the approach on this. And the emergent play is, man, it's just, I, I, I'm, and the, the um, environmental storytelling was a very, very powerful tool for these uh, campaigns. And I'm definitely going to make sure I use those, uh, going forward. Um, last, I guess, I mean, I'll, I'm going to try and keep this to a reasonable length. I've already talked for almost an hour. The last thing I'll, I'll mention is, uh, um, the ease of improvisation. 
you know, with, with that game, because the game is relatively simplistic, um, certainly in comparison to some other games. I mean, as we get more, more levels and, and, uh, you know, monsters get more spells and things like that, I'm going to need to be more, um, more proactive for like, you know, getting magic items for them and things like that. But it has, the lesson I've learned is, you know, learning the game through seeing what players do with it has been an enormously fun and satisfying, uh, experience with this, you know, seeing, I guess, gosh, I got two things, I guess I'll say what, this is a related, these are two related things, I guess, as well, how much players love magic items in the game, you know, when you don't have a set budget that you work from, you know, in, uh, like you do in Pathfinder or Pathfinder two or third, where the characters are expected by the math of the game to have a certain amount of magic items by a certain level, um, when the players get an opportunity to get them in uh, in AD&D second, it's just, it's so cool. And I mean, I imagine like as we get higher levels and as magic items become more prominent and more, you know, you know they get more and more of them, it's going to be, it's going to lose some of that cachet. But right now the, the players, as they, you know, when they get their, the big loot halls or whatever, and they get to spread around a bunch of cool magic items and then discover what they are as they identify them, that is pretty damn cool. You know, like it's been pretty awesome seeing the players make, uh, not only discover them, but also make really clever use of them. Um, I really love that. And it, it allows me to, I don't want to think forward what the players are going to do, like how they're going to respond to things. There's certain things that I need to be aware of. Like if the players have access to something that can put half the party to, you know, half their enemies to sleep or whatever, then I need to be aware of that, you know, as a, um, a potential strategy they'll use, but I, I certainly don't need to, uh, like do the crunch, the math, the way you do or can do in like fifth edition, fourth edition, Pathfinder, Pathfinder two by like, they're going to have X amount of damage and blah, blah, blah. Like it, it just, it, it is a, uh, all I can, all I need to do is just focus on the, um, the simulationist, uh, part of that present a real world. Uh, I guess, geez, I got one more thing I'll say as well too. Uh, so that has been really good. The, the lesson is that players really like magic items in, uh, in in this, and the randomness that you get from them, players will find reasons to uh, to value some magic items. Like they'll find ways to make use of them, which is is awesome. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is um, encounters. You know, um, I mentioned this in in the last podcast as well that the the number of uh, like the way you approach designing encounters in um, Second edition is very different from, uh, you know, later editions of, of the game and Pathfinder. Um, you don't approach a, like a balance kind of thing. It, it feels much, the, the best approach it feels to be uh, presented as a, as a credible world. You know, if, if this particular place they're, they're um, assaulting would have 40 goblins in it, you don't need to have them all in a room and just have them murder the players. But I mean, like, present them as if what would those 40 goblins do to defend and, and uh, how would they set up their, their defenses? How would they fight the players? You know, uh, maybe in waves and, and, uh, and things like that as they come in from different places. Um, <clears throat> that makes for a very, it, it requires the players to first off adopt some really good and, and interesting tactics that feel intuitive and, and like quote unquote real as opposed to being in a gamist mindset. You know, and a good example of this from a recent 
session was players stack, you know, they had some time as this, a horde of, of uh, undead were coming in. So they decided to toss some of the fallen bodies to block off a, a, an, um, one of the passages. And then obviously they couldn't like stack them so high that they couldn't get past. But what it did is it slowed them down as they were shambling past. And it gave the players more opportunity because they took that time. It gave them more of an opportunity to, to set up a defensive point at a different uh, place. You know, and I didn't, I never would have forced, for, you know, thought that through. I just presented the, the map, presented the situation, the players responded accordingly. And um, that's, I, I've seen that in, uh, in Ash, I've seen that in our Night Below campaign, and I've seen that in our Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign. And uh, <clears throat> it's just, it's so cool to watch. Because I don't, I haven't thought through necessarily how they're going to play through this encounter, how they're going to fight these things. They're the ones who are going to sort it out. They, they, you know, I don't ambush them with a hundred goblins, but they get to figure out what they're going to do. And sometimes they'll have to like. There's going to be some trial and error. Our, I mentioned that our, our assault on Heathertop Warren took four tries before they finally, you know, made a successful long-term uh, foray into it and actually cleared out the uh, the area. And I think in a modern game that might be seen as a failure on the part of the of the module or the adventure. And I don't think the players in the R game took it that way. You know, they took it to be, and this sort of is where, you know, again, getting back to my my lack of, of running 3E, maybe I'm wrong about that. Like I, I could be totally wrong. And uh, I know that's the case for 4E and I know that's the case for uh, PF2 um, where, you know, they're, you're expected to be able to get through that thing without having to take a, a rest and whatever. And maybe Pathfinder and uh, um, the older uh, and uh, third edition 3.5, you would be expected to still take rest and kind of like retreat and, and whatnot. But um, having to go back with it, with a walking wounded element of, uh, of AD and D having a, like at some points be like, look guys, we are really messed up right now. We need to get back to town and do some training and get some gear and deal with these mortal wounds we're dealing with and then come back. That just felt more, I don't know. I mean, it felt more real and felt more immersive. It felt more like, like what would, what would be a, a how that would play out, you know, uh, than just everything happening over the span of about three days. Cause you just, you know, even if you did retreat in, in most of those modern games, you're pretty much back to default pretty quickly. So that whole assault would take place over the span of, uh, you know, uh, of a, uh, a weekend, you know, it's a weekend getaway to, to clear out the dungeon. Whereas in AD&D second, um, that becomes a, like I said, uh, in the last episode, that's a campaign. And I love that. I love that. Love that. Love that. I, I, I love the idea that we may be pushing through into the winter, you know, with this, uh, uh, with this next leg of the campaign, we're definitely going to fall and then I'll see what the players are going to do. But it, I'm, I really appreciate that, uh, Carl Sargent suggested using the training rules in order to give the campaign that amount of time to breathe. And while I'm not using the training rules in uh, our legacy, the crystal shard game, cause that is more of a, a ticking clock kind of game. We really can't afford to have, uh, you know, weeks go by with that. I would definitely, definitely, definitely make use of the training rules in the next AD&D game I run because it is, it's really, even if it's not something the players like, I think it's like medicine, you know, it's good for them. I think it's good for the campaign to have that, you know, a reason and a clear motivation to get more money, to make money have that much more valuable rather than just seeing your numbers go up to have that clear, like, yes, I can afford my level of, of training and the next level and some loot. 
Because in AD&D, there's not really much else you're spending your loot on unless until you get mid and high levels and you're making magic items or potions or scrolls or shit. So, so yeah, so that's some other lessons I learned from it. Um, maybe I'll end, well, I got to get some packing done. So I'm going to end this podcast here. I'll make an outro a little later today and add in anything else that I can think of. But uh, that's it for part two. Okay, I actually thought of a couple other things uh, that might be worth uh, mentioning uh, it, those are these are more lessons that I learned from uh, from running uh, Night Below for the last uh, 33 sessions. Um, another is the importance of this is something I sort of had clued into with uh, um, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea, but it that is that one is less uh, because of the the way that I, I let the characters start with pretty high level um, uh, stats uh, in it. I uh, I did not, uh, we don't really see the encumbrance come into play all that much, but um, tracking encumbrance, tracking the use of rations when they're out in the wild, um, tracking ammunition use, like all these things, um, by putting a focus on that, it, you know, uh, some players I understand, uh, you know, feel that, they, oh, it's just bookkeeping, it's just bookkeeping, but the reason that stuff is important, and the reason that stuff actually matters is because it, again, like, it's another one of these things that makes for you more Im, uh, immersive and a more, like, convincing uh, world, when your characters can't just carry around, um, you know, ungodly amounts of stuff, uh, that makes it feel more, like a, like a more real world, uh, and when um, the, uh, what do you call it, well, when it's not subject to DMFI it, uh, it, it becomes a more, I don't know, it's, it's another factor that players can take into consideration, you know, do they wear heavier armor, uh, and then carry less stuff, or do they carry more things, do they want to have that, that extra sheaf of, uh, arrows, uh, or extra quiver of arrows in order to, you know, uh, to, uh, to be able to keep firing for longer, um, and, the the re I guess like the the fun that comes from that it's not just tedious you know it's not just that it has to uh, all relate to the um, uh, to the the immersion it's also that it makes um, it makes a a game of uh, resource management you know um, that's something that is I I mean I think at least from the, what I've seen in the in the the players doing in the game it definitely makes for when you can't just do everything when you can't just be you know um uh able to carry you know ungodly amounts of weight and never have to worry about it slowing you down um that makes for a more interesting um you know decision uh it makes for more interesting decisions that the players can make and and more things they get to mull over and that's things they can think about between sessions so in, in the same way that like character advancement uh occupies the uh you know, kind of the uh, inter-party sessions in, in terms of the characters, the players, uh, thinking about it, that's a decision they can make as well, too. They can think about whether they're going to carry that, you know, that extra stuff, or whether they're it's worth sacrificing the armor class to get something lighter. I also like that um, your speed isn't dictated by your armor class. You know, your speed is dictated by your encumbrance. Uh, so, you know, just because you're wearing heavier armor, if you're a very big, strong person, you can move at a reasonable rate. Now, Pathfinder 2... Uh, accounts for that uh, already, but uh, I don't think D and D five does, uh, and I know fourth didn't. So, um, so yeah, so that's another thing that I, I think is really it. There are more dimensions to it, and there are more 
things that flow from it than you know than just the 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 tedious or seemingly tedious bookkeeping. And I'll tell you, like the if you think that drama doesn't come from that kind of stuff, from seeing that resource depleted, uh, you haven't played a game where you've got limited ammo before, like in a, a video game where you got limited ammo, and you're trying to you find yourself down to those last couple of shots. You're trying to make them count. Um, and you're not, you know, you haven't played in a, in a uh, TTRPG where you get your characters in a similar position where, like, shit, we're down to it. I mentioned in, in uh, down to the last few uh, shots, and I'm not sure I can keep, you know, firing. I mentioned in the last podcast how in one of our recent, uh, well, in, in the most recent uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard game, one of the players uh, was so low on, uh, on arrows, he was running around snatching them out of the fallen... Um, enemies, you know, and we use uh, weapon or arrow breakage as well too. So investing in a proficiency like you know um, uh, fletching does have an actual consequence. You know, it costs it saves them some money, um, and it allows you know the players to, to replenish that that resource. It gives it a, me- a specific meaningful consequence to taking that feat that isn't uh, or feat taking that to proficiency. Uh, that has direct game consequence to it as well, too, in addition to being kind of a fun background, you know, element of it. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, I mean, uh, th- that element, that aspect of the game, again, like, I would not use it in every game, and it, it's not appropriate for every game, but for the style of play that we're doing, where there is this, you know, uh, emergent play, there's a persisting world, there's a sandbox where the, the players will go and the world where they want, and the world will react accordingly. Um, this, uh, th- th- that type of, um, of thing is one of the components that I think is very important in, um, you know, in uh, tracking that stuff. Um, and that's something you do need to make clear to the players from the get-go, that they need to track that stuff, and you need to trust that they will. Um, and to be honest, if a player cheats, I, I would, you know, it's going to be hard for me to, to find, or to track that, but God forbid if they, uh, if I do catch them, um, the, yeah, I mean, I, I just, that, that is it. I, I joke a, a lot of times about how, you know, the wilderness survival guy is my favorite AD&D book, but you know, this is one of the reasons why is because of the consequence of adopting those rules. The consequence is, is that you have this terrific persisting, I don't know, this, this, it just feels when you're going on a journey, it's not a Tolkien-esque kind of thing where, you know, like, it's a voyage, you know, there's picturesque kind of things you go along the way and blah, blah, blah. It feels like actual travel. Anyone who's done backpack camping or anyone who's done, you know, um, long-distance hiking or things like that, you'll appreciate what, you know, what that's like. Like, what how, how that the those rules can simulate the, the, I don't know, the tactile feel of undertaking those kinds of, uh, exercises, you know, which I think, again, like, I mean, it adds more, um, AD&D combat, I think is really, is really great. Uh, but the adding those rules in, it makes the travel feel so cool too. You know, um, when you combine that with the random encounter element of, uh, uh, of the, of, um, a, uh, AD&D, uh, it just, you know, it really makes going into the wild feel like a real um, dangerous endeavor, you know, and one that the players can uh, adequately prep for. And also, I mean, like, it can inform proficiency selection as well, too. So, like, the players may be 
picking certain things that will help make that job easier, you know, or or make that uh, um, that task less perilous. And I love that. I love that that like the, the amount of players in who play in my Night Below campaign who have since joined the uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign who are now all playing Rangers. <laughs> I think really is a testament to. Uh, to the impact and the importance and, and how much that, that shit really has a consequence at the table and the style of play they get and whatever. And again, like this is not something that is appropriate for every game. But for the style of for what I want out of a um, out of a you know fa- a table a fantasy uh, role playing game, um, this is so like right in the center of, of what I want out of it. It's all these little things that make because uh, you know you might think that well this just all makes the heroes feel like chumps and, and I don't think any of the players will tell you that they didn't feel like like any of the successes that the players have earned in any of my uh, old school games in the Legacy of the Crystal Shard in uh, the what do you call it um, in uh, Ash in Night Below none of them will, f- will feel like their characters are not heroes or not badasses. They just earn their successes. You know, like they, they really have to fight for them. They have to plan for them. Um, they are the, the characters that are, that are emerging from our Night Below game, from our Ash game. These are hard-tempered warriors, you know. Like they have been forged in fire uh, because of all those things that, that they're, you know, they're overcoming. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously in extremes, any of these things can be really overly tedious, right? Uh, like, you need to make sure you're applying them appropriately, but I mean, if you're constantly having the players, you know, forever be thirsty or hungry or whatnot, or if you're doing dickish things to ruin their the plans that they make to offset these things, like when the players, you know, if they prepare rations don't have the first random encounter come in and ruin those rations or steal those rations. Like, that's just, you're being an asshole, you're just forcing them to to suffer for no reason. But if they, like, a great emergent thing that happened in our Night Below campaign was when one of the players, to distract a bunch of dogs, started randomly throwing down some of his rations to try and distract these dogs from attacking one of his friends. Um, we randomly rolled to see how many, uh, you know, days worth of rations were tossed down, because, I mean, he, he was just sort of throwing shit. Turned out it was a whole lot. So this character who had planned very, very well for these eventualities suddenly found himself scrambling to try and have enough food, you know, to make it through, and he wasn't sure he would. So, um, and and that's just, you know, that was a natural consequence of what happened in the game. It wasn't me being an asshole and taking away shit. It was just, it worked out that way. And if the players take the time to prepare for all this stuff, to hunt to, you know, collect herbs so they can help with, with the healing, to invest in the, the two proficiency slots it takes, even as a cleric, to learn um, healing. You know, these are all things you reward. You know, you reward by letting them have those wins. Uh, they can hunt and they can prepare their meat. You know, they can, uh, um, I don't know, it just, it, it's, uh, it's a great way of uh, both challenging the player's um, you know, to, to consider the things, to think about what, where their character fits in the world, to really make them think about the the the, the reality, you know, again, quote-unquote reality, of living in that world, the things that that character needs to deal with in the fiction. Um, and it, it just feels so much like 
the kind of hard bitten, you know, and and really um, heroes who succeed in spite of their circumstances that I want to have out of a game more so than you know the um, the more um, I don't know like uh, obvious heroes and obvious sort of like heroes playing in a balanced setting that you get in D and D fourth, D and D third, fifth. Uh, Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2. And it's not to say that I don't, and again, like I love 4th, uh, I love uh, Pathfinder 2, uh, I'm, I'm very fond of Pathfinder 1. I, I, it's not that those games are bad games by any means, it's just like this is, this particular campaign is so hitting exactly what I want out of a fantasy uh, um, role-playing experience that it's just, it, I, I'm really, really excited by it and, and really looking forward to seeing where the campaigns go next. Um, so that's all the great stuff. Let's talk about uh, the thing I th- thing I, I think I could have done better and will try to do better in future. All right, so this is less uh, the night below, um, more so than just the um, so the way I've um, uh, done things in our Ash game. So we got a bunch of factions in our Ash game, and uh, I had done something similar in our Barrowmaze campaign before too, where people could gain kind of like faction benefits from different... Uh, factions, and then they could, as they tiered up, they could gain different rewards uh, from those different factions. And then I kind of, to be honest, we because of what where the campaign's gone, they really haven't had an opportunity to further pursue that. So uh, there haven't been any further benefits uh, accrued from um, from those things. And I have not introduced similar faction benefits in uh, my in either the uh, Night Below campaign or in the. Um, what do you call it? In the Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign, uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard is is obviously I, I like that's a, sh- a relatively short period campaign, so I'm not going to necessarily do that there. Um, and I I'm not sure that the uh, the tiered benefits from the different factions is really worth the effort that I put in to try and you know, put them together in the first place. Um, having specific magic item goals is is kind of, like, it's cool, and I, I get why it's an, an attractive thing in a game where you can, you, players normally have more agency over their, what magic items they end up with, uh, either because they can buy them or because they can craft them themselves relatively easily. But in this, in, in AD&D 2nd, it's, you know, as I mentioned previously on this episode, it's it's just a different animal uh, from the um, from the way it is in, in more modern games, you don't get to you know just go and, and buy them. Um, it's and part of the real fun is making use of the random ones you you know finding value in the random ones you find. You know, using a suboptimal weapon just because it happens to be a magic item. Uh, that that's kind of I like that. I like that 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 feels more believable than you know following. And on, I mean, and finding unexpected value in it, I guess, is what I'm saying. Is like seeing unexpected value in, uh, like, one of the players in our um, uh, Night Below campaign. He struck the killing blow with this uh, weapon that he didn't really think he was going to, you know, it, it was not an optimal weapon for him, but he took it just to have a, a magic weapon carrying it around just in case. And uh, turns out that it was the clinch kill after two of our two of the, uh, the heroes had gone down that was the clinch killing stroke for this uh, this boss fight and it was fucking great um, and you know that is 
I think that by setting up the tiered factions that uh, there were tiered rewards for different factions that sort of uh, takes that away um, that 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 fun unexpected uh, development or you know fun unexpected value you find in, in uh, magic items um, I also find that it's not very few players really seem to pursue them all that much so uh, and those that did it becomes sort of the that becomes the focus of the campaign then like that, that they're trying to curry further favor with their faction and I think there's a better way of doing that um, in the Degenesis RPG there's a neat uh, set of optional rules you can use where you basically like the different uh, cults the, the, which are effectively the factions in, in that game you can uh, there's some cards you can print off for them and you set them out and um, as players gain uh, you know, interact with um, with those characters. They uh, they gain um, abstracted uh, benefits uh, from them. You know, they they uh, will gain modifiers to skill checks to like social skill checks to against them, and they may gain benefits like you know favors they can call in or resources they can call in or things like that. And I think that that I mean, if I were to adopt something like that for a campaign, uh, I think that's the Approach I would use, and maybe reworking my uh, Ash game. That's a, that's a project I could work on. Is rework the reward system to be something more like that, where it's just it's it's simplified to being like a um, plus or minus uh, modifier, and then have some a set amount of uh, like GP value of resources they can call in. Um, some things automatically, some things uh, that would reduce their you know their uh, their whatever their level with them um that might be and then because i, I do tend to make use of the encounter uh, reaction uh, modifiers in uh, in these old school games uh that could be a further modifier that they could have bonuses with certain ones penalties with other ones and so forth um the reason i, I wouldn't introduce that in legacy of the crystal shard is because it's just there's not enough time that campaign is like i said a ticking clock so i'm not gonna have enough time to develop that um, and in the Night Below campaign, I don't want it to sideline the... the. They've already got an idea of who their people are. I don't think I need to make another game of that. But if I was going to run, you know, like say my, um, you know, my Sandbox uh, Dark Sun game that I'm, I'm, uh, I'd like to run as a follow-up to uh, one of the games that's ongoing right now, uh, I, uh, I think I would definitely consider putting that in there and have... Uh, you know, like some merchant houses, some sorcerer kings, uh, the Sonic Guild, the Veiled Alliance, um, slave tribes, uh, gladiator, uh, you know, schools, um, elven tribes, you know, dwarven clans. There's a lot of cool stuff you could, uh, you know, and noble houses. There's a lot of cool stuff you could potentially, you know, use to populate a setting, and that might be a fun way to not necessarily have it dominate the um, the play, uh, but it would give you a way. Like dominate the, the focus of the campaign, but it would be another way to sort of have players um, have mechanical consequence that they throw in with one, say, merchant house that's at odds with a noble family. When they have to deal with that noble family, they, you know, they'll suffer those penalties. Oh, you're those guys who did X, Y, Z against uh, us before. No, no, fuck you guys. Or they may, you know, uh, conversely have that positive where the the players um, or the characters get a chance to. To really shine and be like, oh yeah, no, you guys are the ones who helped us with that, you know, one caravan run to Gulge or to uh, Nibane, you know, uh, so there would be an extra benefit for that. So 
that might be pretty cool. I think that's a, that's a I like the way that they do it in, um, what do you call it, in uh, Crystal Shard, or Crystal Shard, in uh, the Genesis. So I think that, that would be a fun thing to try uh, for this and just see how it plays out. Um, yeah, so anyway, that is, uh, that's the thing, is, is the, the way that uh, I, I've handled the, or, or the lack of handling the social stuff, I, I think it might be worth getting that in there because then it, get, it adds a little bit of game to the social thing. But I think it's it's important to not add too, too much because gamifying it too much, I think, uh, takes them out of the fiction. You know, to, it focuses more on just that raw number of renown rather than just, f like, feeling it organically in the, in the game itself. So, anyway, so that's, um, that is my, um, I think that is my concluding thoughts on that. I'll, I'll probably keep coming up with stuff if I don't just post this episode, so probably I'll just end this episode here. And um, let's go with the outro. Okay, so that's it for that episode. Um, as is always the case, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this episode, please do not hesitate to, con uh, con uh, to contact me by uh, shooting me an av anchor of voice message. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can reach me by email. My email is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. And you can... Uh, find me, um, if you go to the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, on any of our recent videos, you can find a link to the Dungeon Musings Discord server, and you are more than welcome to join us on there, where we have lots of discussions about uh, many of the topics we have here. We have channels dedicated to all of the campaigns we run on the channel. And, uh, oh, and you also can find us on uh, Patreon now as well, too. So there is that as well. Um, anyway, I hope that this finds everyone healthy, safe, and weathering the current uh, crisis as well as can be expected. I know it's a mixture of cabin fever and terror around these parts, but uh, you know the the gaming we've been indulging in the last little while has really helped kind of provide a welcome distraction, I guess causing terror and <laughs> and uncertainty for others. Uh, it really helps alleviate my own, so I'm sure that speaks poorly of me. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening, uh, and until I sp uh, speak to you again, happy gaming.